I speak to you in the name of the Holy Trinity. Amen. We have a lot, a lot, a lot going on in the gospel today, not to mention in the story of Sarai and Abram, as well as the passage from Romans. So while I will go somewhat deeply into one of them, I mostly want to focus on drawing them all together by considering why we are reading these passages now at this time of the year. What's the binding thread that runs through them all? How do they fit into the liturgical calendar? And how does that inform what we take away from them? I asked Andrew to include a graphic in the bulletin today that speaks to these questions. You can find it on page six. For those of you who are listening online, there's a version of it in the online bulletin in the Constant Contact email. I've always loved this graphic because it's a terrific diagram of the liturgical seasons. It's from Theological Horizons, an educational group down in Charlottesville, Virginia. I remember when I was studying at General Seminary, our liturgics professor used to say that the lectionary year is a circle and we spend it walking around Jesus, seeing him from all different locations, both in our own lives and in the story of his life. So this graphic is a visual, visual illustration of what that means the first half of any liturgical year on the top, starting at Advent, is the story of Jesus. It's told from our anticipation of his coming straight through his ministry and onto his death and resurrection, followed by the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The second half of the year, ordinary time, as we name it, is the lower half of the circle, the story of us, the people of God. But let's immediately note that it doesn't say the story of Christian people or the story of Jesus people. What I like about that is that it reminds us right up front that we are not the only people of God. Let's also note that in many of the stories we hear during this time of year, there are other kinds of people of God present, faithfully living and moving and being in God as well. Sometimes they become followers of Jesus. Sometimes they continue on their own faithful path. Both are, in the words of God in Genesis, very good because we are all children of God and people of God, no matter what tradition we embrace. 
Another thing I want to note is that there's actually no real separation between the two halves of the circle. They each inform and transform each other. The circular shape of the liturgical year reminds us pointedly that Sundays and feast days are not the only days when we are called to be Christian. Our purpose is to bring that joy, presence, heart-opening love into the world all the way around the circle, 24-7-365. This calendar shows us visually that our obligation to live and to testify to what we have experienced is with us always, just as Jesus is with us always, even unto the end of the age. So it's fitting then that the first readings we hear in ordinary time, as we move from the story of Jesus to the story of the people of God, are all call narratives. In this case, most obviously, the calls of Sarai and Abram and the call of Matthew. But our excerpt from Romans is actually a call narrative as well. Paul characterizes the journey of Abram and Sarai as their response to the call of faith. So it's that emphasis on call that connects these passages. And it's what links us to each other too, the people of God. When we then approach Paul's letter to the Romans in that context, the larger context of everyone being a child of God, we need to pause and consider the all too frequent misuse of Paul's words by Christians down the ages to denigrate our Jewish brothers and sisters, a misuse that twists Paul's words to make the astonishing and unfounded claim that Paul thought that Jewish practice was legalistic and outdated. Paul was a Pharisee. His encounter with the risen Christ did not change that. He remained a Pharisee his entire life. He continued to live that calling his entire life. I think that in his letter to the Romans, Paul was doing his best to explain that which is not explicable, to put into words a mystical experience that shifted his perceptions and opened him up to that wonderful and sacred mystery, which is the ground of being, the love that permeates all of creation. Having that experience did not mean Paul was no longer Jewish. We all know that such heart-opening experience can and do happen in every faith tradition, not just ours. Paul did have an agenda. 
It was to share his experience far and wide. He had found a way of living that felt life-giving and sustaining. Those insights in his encounter with the risen Christ were a form of conversion for him. What they converted him from was being a person who persecuted the religious other to being a person who understood deep in his bones that we are all children of God, which is why he started preaching to the Gentiles. Paul didn't think those insights should be limited only to those who were already Jewish people. So the irony of Christians using this passage to denigrate Jewish people is especially thick. Paul was writing in order to persuade Gentile converts in Rome to stop doing exactly that, to stop them from persecuting and excluding their Jewish brothers and sisters who were also followers of Jesus. The immediate historical background of the letter to the Romans was an edict from Emperor Claudius that exiled Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus from Rome in 49 CE. They were only allowed back into Rome when Nero became emperor in 54. Some scholars think that in that five-year period, the Gentile Christians of Rome began to look down on Jewish Christians, and they were also likely afraid of associating with them when they came back. So Paul's larger purpose in this letter was to remind the Gentile Christians how deep our ties with Judaism were and still are to exhort them to welcome their Jewish friends back with open arms. So today, we have three different sources, Genesis, Romans, and Matthew's Gospel, each one giving us call narratives. In Genesis, Sarai and Abram Tribal elders called by God to leave the place they knew and journey far at advanced ages. Called to trust that they would find home and rest. Called to become the matriarch and patriarch of peoples so abundant that their numbers could not be counted. Matthew, a tax collector, dismissed as a traitor by his own people, called by Jesus. The unnamed leader of a synagogue who came to find Jesus because his daughter had died. The girl was healed. An unnamed woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage who followed Jesus so that she could touch his garment. She, too, was healed. And lastly, Paul, a Pharisee who persecuted Christians until he encountered the risen Christ 
on the road to Damascus. After that, he journeyed far and near, preaching the good news to everyone he met. We would be hard-pressed, I think, to find a more disparate group of people, and yet all of them are called, each in their own way, which means our own scriptures affirm for us that Christians are not the only ones who are called by God, and that those who encounter Jesus or Christians sometimes become Christians, but sometimes continue on their own equally faithful paths. So here at the start of ordinary time, these stories ask us to look back and to look forward. They prompt us to consider, when have you felt called in your life? Where and how did it happen? What were you called to do? Did it disrupt your life significantly? How has your call changed over the years? And how does your individual story fit into the larger story of the people of God? As we move deeper into the summer and fall, we will encounter many different people interacting with Jesus and with the disciples. So please keep these questions in mind as we go along, for they are not just the stories of people who lived long ago. They are our stories as well, for we are those people. Amen.